be seated. And as you are, just a couple of little miscellaneous things this morning before we get to the sermon. Um, since we, my family came to Washington State in 2010, we, we drove cross country in January of 2010 to come out here to take a position at Smoky Point Community Church. From that day forward, we had the privilege of getting to know uh, a woman who is now part of our congregation again, and uh, Karina would would probably cringing right now that I'm even mentioning her name. Where are you, Karina? Where, where, where? There she is. Okay, hi, Karina. Um, congratulations to you on finishing your BA accounting degree. I know that's been a that's been a a, a long time coming, and you have worked diligently. And I just want to celebrate what God's done through you. Way to go, um, uh, Nick. Uh, Nick is dressed as a mobster today, so steer clear of Nick. Um, I think those are all the other announcements we have. Um, uh, no, Marcus and Noah, you guys could pray for Marcus and Noah. They're at Black Lake for a youth uh, gathering this weekend, and they're leading worship, and I'm sure they're having a blast, but they're going to come home exhausted, so just be praying for them as they wrap up this last day and, and come back. So, um, Glad to be with you guys this morning. I just, uh, since we've been praying as a church in, in this new year and being intentional in the Word of God, I feel a fresh breath of God in my life. I don't know if you feel that, being in the Word every day and, and just feeling like the Lord's taking us in the direction that He wants us to go, and I'm so grateful for that. And I hope that you're, you're in the Word daily as we're reading through the Bible this year. It's, it's, it's just awesome. Uh, we're in... Um, this would be Harmony of the Gospel, section 124, if you have your harmony. It's Matthew 17, 14 to 21, Mark 9, 14 to 29, and Luke 9, 37 to 43. I'll, I'll call these out again as we read through the texts. But um, think back to the time of Jesus. A rabbi or a religious leader is very common for them to have a, a small group of disciples in the time of Jesus, and even before that. Uh, but only the, those students with the highest aptitude uh, for theology and memorization of Scripture could ever even hope to end up studying with the religious leaders as one of their Talmudim. Now, Talmudim is the plural word for disciple in, in that language. And so these were those people who had, <laughs> they had memorized the first five books of Moses. That's the starting point. They memorized the first five books of Moses and many of the other scriptures that we refer to as the Old Testament. And essentially, like many jobs and positions in our own culture, those positions were merit-based. You had to achieve to get there. And the better you were at memorizing scripture and parsing it out, then the higher you would rise in the ranks of your peers until you attain the title, either rabbi or Pharisee or Sadducee or whatever it was. And so no longer at that point would you be the student, you were now the teacher. And it strikes me as so countercultured the way that Jesus picked his Talmudim, picked his disciples. See, instead of seeking those with the highest aptitude, Jesus spent time in prayer first asking God, the Father, who do you want? 
me to pick? Who have you already selected that you want me to pour into? His decision, as we've seen, was not predicated on the intellectual and theological prowess and aptitude of his disciples. He wasn't looking for the sharpest tax in the box. He wasn't, he wasn't looking for the sharpest tools in the shed. He just asked the Father, who do, you, who do you want for me? And those are the ones that he picked. See, in doing that, Jesus inverted the established paradigm and, and chose what I call the last kids picked for theological dodgeball instead. Right? You, you've been there if you've come up in public school. You, you, everybody knows who those two or three kids are that are going to be the last ones picked. And that's who Jesus chose first. It's amazing to me. And when you think about it, you can see its brilliance because there were no, for the disciples, there were no preconceived notions or concepts regarding the truths that they were going to receive or or the way in which they were going to be taught. Jesus had blank slates to work with pretty much. And and so the the men that Jesus handpicked, apart from having grown up as religious Jews, they, they again, blank slates with no ambition for the power of the religious establishment. They, they had no ambition. They, these are blue-collar workers who were never going to get into the ranks of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and yet Jesus picks them to be his, his Talmudim, his disciples. But the disciples of Jesus were, and, and, and still are, and, and you are, that's you, called into a new life with a new way of living, with new requirements, Right? And, and, and they were to order their lives according to God's word, not, not just know intellectually the minutia of the law, but to reorder their lives around what God had said. Jesus wanted them to do it, not just know it. I think that's a huge problem in American culture. We think that because we heard a thing or we saw a thing or we memorized the words that we know it, but there's an experiential aspect to knowing God, right? It's not just the intellectual, it's the, it's the doing. And so the, the apostles of Jesus, see, Jesus wants them to do it. They, they, he, wants, he wants to model ministry for those who would follow him, and, and then he's going to do that for them, and then he wants them to take that on beyond the resurrection and the ascension. They're going to they're watch Jesus, learn from Jesus, and then take what they've learned on into the future. The apostles in the, in, of Jesus in the text and us as disciples in our time and context, we're supposed to realign our lives um, that we might live according to the demands of the kingdom, not the demands of the world, for this world is passing away. So it's a reorienting of, of our value system. And it's through such men and women that God's kingdom is actualized and realized. The law, the law was a legally binding prescription with prohibitions for the Jews and anybody else who would come to God, right? And, and the disciples of the Pharisees and the religious leaders would apprentice with one of them with a view towards becoming a religious leader themselves. But here's the difference for us as New Testament believers, because grace demands not just our intellect, but the whole person. The grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus demands all of us, our whole person. And it's, it can be a high calling, and it can be a tall order, and sometimes we can feel like we're not attaining to that. But Jesus calls us to more than just an occupation, more than simply knowing the right words and phrases from the Bible. 
more than just memorizing laws and ceremonies. He calls us to be like He is and to walk as He walked and to love the way that He loved. And that's a very different calling. I want you to see this right out of the gate this morning. This is a very different calling. Jesus calls us to a much deeper commitment and reality than simply knowing the right information about God's law. He requires necessary humbleness in us. And later on, you'll see the disciples, they're going to argue about who gets the place of honor among them when Jesus ascends into his glorious throne. But, but right now, what's about to happen in the text, they're about to get a lesson in humility. And, it, and it's, that's never pretty. When, when God says, ooh, wow, you need a lesson in humility, it's, it's painful. I don't know. Anybody? Lesson in humility? Okay, for those of you who can't put your hands up, it's coming. It's coming. Okay, so let me just re- let me read the, the three texts here that parallels Matthew 17, 14 to 20. Here's Matthew's account. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and, and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Here's Mark's account. Remember, Mark is Peter's gospel. Uh, Mark is his amanuensis, his secretary. And so Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him and said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, 
uh, hey, why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And here's Luke's account, Luke 9, 37 to 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's only a child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son to me. Bring him here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus spoke to his disciples. And we'll stop right there. Let's deal with this little boy, these seizures. This is, this is what we call epilepsy, right? Let's, let's just dig down on Jesus' handling of this demonized boy with seizures. This little boy had what we know to be today epilepsy. Now, in the Latin, I did some reading this week because I'm not a doctor. I know that's shocking to you. Um, had to do a little reading. In Latin, epilepsy is translated lunatic. I didn't know that. And that word literally means moonstruck. Luna, lunar, moon, right? Um, and that term is now considered dated and offensive because everything's offensive. Lunatic derives from the Latin, again, luna. It's the notion that the moon causes certain types of madness or induces dangerous aspects of our personalities. And that thought has been around for a very long time, thousands of years, actually. Uh, you can go all the way back to men like Aristotle and Pliny the Elder, Greek philosophers, for instance, who suggested that the light of the moon affected a person's mental health. Um, in ancient times, some people thought that the symptom of epilepsy or seizures was aggravated by the moon's increase. So when the moon was fuller, they had more problems. Um, epilepsy has many different causes, and about half the people with epilepsy that we in the United States today uh, can't find the cause of their condition. It's about half half of the people they don't they don't know why they have it. Some causes are genetics, uh, brain trauma. It can be caused by autoimmune disorders, metabolic issues, infectious diseases, and each cause has different signs and diagnoses and treatment options, and it's. It's just this big mess. It's hard to sort it all out. But we need to remember that we do not live in a merely physical universe. We don't live in the universe of Darwin and, and simply what we can, the, 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 what the five senses can apprehend, right? We live in a reality that includes the unseen realm, that has a spirit realm. So to say that a person has an actual physical or psychological ailment does not preclude the presence or influence of the demonic. And we need to, we need to take that into account. Not that there are demons hiding behind every bush. Right? There's some, some Christians that get so into this, it's like everywhere they look, every, every single thing that happens is because of a demon, right? And that's not, that's not healthy either. But, um, you know, this is the reality with this little boy in the text. He does have a demonic issue. And as a culture... Honestly, 
I feel like we've put so much of our faith in science that we ignore this reality sometimes, even in the church. And, and by the way, the word science is just a word that means knowledge. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but science only deals with the physical realm. And demons are metaphysical entities. They're spirit beings. And they have to be dealt with accordingly. Right? You can't give a person an aspirin because they have a demon. They have to be dealt with accordingly. In the spirit realm, it's not about the proper protocols and medicines and treatments. In the spirit realm, it's about authority. And Jesus has all authority. Amen? Okay. Disciples, so the disciples can't do it. They can't do it. So, so Jesus does. Jesus steps in. Jesus casts it out, and he rebukes his disciples. In fact, he refers to them, and this is heavy, he refers to them as a faithless and perverse generation. <laughs> That's a big, big deal. This goes back to Deuteronomy 32 and the Exodus wanderings. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says, The rock, meaning not Dwayne Johnson, the Lord, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So in taking that, that verse out of Deuteronomy and, and applying it in that moment, Jesus in that moment is equivocating the apostles with that generation of Israelites who were faithless. They, they, didn't, they didn't have faith that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. And both groups failed to fully appropriate the power that had been granted to them. Remember back in Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, and proclaim as you go when he sent, we sent them out, Right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he said, do this. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You've received without paying, give without pay. So that, that had already been Christ's authorization on them, deputized them, right? This was a lack of faith on their part. Not in, not in Jesus as Messiah, but a lack of faith in his words and in the reality that Jesus promised. And even faith, as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, can move mountains. But the disciples had forgotten. They had lost sight of it. I mean, Jesus rebukes the demon. I mean, how, look at the contrast. They can't do it. And then Jesus steps in and he just he rebukes it with a word. And it comes out of the child. And if you remember from previous sermons, we talked about daemonizomai the Greek word, to be demonized, and how that word describes a whole spectrum of interaction between a human being and the demonic realm, and how they can influence a little bit and, and start to gain access into your life. And at some point, you've given them so much access that they actually have control over your physical being, right? And so, yeah, obviously, I don't want any of us to be toying with the things that would open the door to that. So, so be very uh, circumspect about what you engage with in the culture. But here we have a young child. I mean, a young little boy. How did this happen to him? It's not like he was sitting up playing with Ouija boards. I mean, this is this is Israel. They go to the temple. You know, this is, the, this is pretty strict stuff. How did this happen? Well, we don't know because the Scripture doesn't tell us. But one way that this does happen is through 
uh, generational curses passed down in family systems. We won't get deep into that today, but if you, you, you can look back through your family and see a consistent pattern of reoccurring sin. Maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe, maybe you don't have that. I know I, I had that in my life. Um, it's something that you need to, if, that, if, you, if you go home this week and you're just thinking through like your family, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and you're seeing this reoccurring sin in every generation, and it's happening again and again, that, that's, that's what Scripture calls a generational curse. And, and it's something that, as a Christian, you have the power in the Spirit to break that cycle. And we need to. We need to. I had, I had an experience like this in uh, our campus ministry days. We were at staff conference in, I think it was 2003 or 2004. And I had been thinking about my family of origin and how um, my, my grandpa, uh, I only knew him until I was three because he died really when I was three years old. I, I just don't have much memory of him. But that whole side of my family, my dad's side, um, they all came from North Georgia. And they, and they said, uh, all Satterfields are either preachers or outlaws. And some of them are both. And, and that was the reality of my family. And I just remember reoccurring things happening in my life, seeing it in my dad, seeing it in my grandparents, seeing it in other family members. And I remember that staff conference where I just asked the other uh, campus ministry staff to come around me and for us to pray together. I didn't want to walk in that anymore. I didn't want to just repeat the mistakes of previous generations and continue in those same sins. And, and we spent an hour or two in prayer together, and it was incredible for me. I share that because maybe there, there are some of you who need that, and you need the elders of the church. You need us to come around you and spend time in prayer, just asking the Lord to, to break those. They're really alliances that, that we make with the evil one without even knowing it. We make agreement in our hearts for the things that we want in this life, and we don't even realize it. And so uh, if, if you're finding, if you look back in your family of origin, man, somebody wants me to stop preaching. It's like that thing rings every time. You just tell me I'm done, and I'll just stop. It's fine. I, no. Um, if you, but if you find that you have that reoccurring, those patterns in your life, you can see them in your family, we, our, our elders, our, our leadership would love to pray with you. Just, just ask the Lord to step in and break those cycles of generational curses. Um, you know, the apostles had the authority, but they lacked faith. They'd been deputized. And it's really interesting to me that in the spirit realm, in the demonic realm, there are entities who are powerful enough that a rebuke is not enough to make them believe. Jesus says in Mark's account, that this kind only comes out by prayer. And I've seen other variants of this text that include the word fasting, but this speaks to a differentiation within the demonic realm in terms of power. They are not all the same, right? And based on Jesus talking about the mustard seed and unbelief, it's apparent that the disciples had attempted to cast the demon out of the child without relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like, hey, demon, We've been deputized to bring you in. Oh, that's right. Did you bring a gun? Uh, no. That's not effective, is it? That doesn't work. The apostles of Jesus are wearing their badges and they left their guns at home. We need to be careful not to do the same thing. Okay? We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're in willful sin, we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The apostles are embarrassed. They're humiliated in this moment. And in spite of all that they've seen, and remember, they just came down the Mount of Transfiguration. This hadn't been very long ago. And in spite of all that they've seen and all that they've done and all the privileged moments and experiences, they are in this moment powerless because they're relying on their own status rather than relying on the Holy Spirit to work through them. I want you to know we can do the same thing if we're not careful. We rely on our status. Oh, I'm a child of God. Okay. Did you bring a loaded weapon to this? <laughs> no. No. Okay. We need to come in the strength and the power of, of, of the Holy Spirit. We need to come with the Word of God on our lips and in our hearts. The apostles are embarrassed. They're humiliated in this moment. And in spite of all that they've seen, all that they've done, all the privileged moments and experiences, they're still powerless right now because they're relying again on their own status. They're not relying on the Spirit to work in and through them in the moment. See, this calls for grace. The, the Christian life calls for grace, not perfection. Be, you know, beyond this situation, we need to we need to unpack how we handle failure as born again Christians, because at some point you're going to fail. You're going to be walking with the Lord and you're going to stumble and fall. You're going to fail in some way. And we need to know how to handle that as Christians. Just because you're born again doesn't mean you're going to do everything perfectly the first time. The disciples have been following Jesus for a while at this point, and they still boffed it. And we all do. And that's why there's grace for us. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our shortcomings. Church, listen, you need to hear this. Church is not about being or attaining perfection in this life. Please don't ever let that become the, the mindset in, in, your, in your head. Church is, church is about perfection. No, not this side of heaven. Not this side of heaven. Church is about grace. See, God knows our weaknesses. God knows our shortcomings. Church is, church is about uh, the, the, the reality that we're going to be glorified in the presence of Jesus someday when we stand with him and then we will be perfect even as he is perfect. And then we'll look around at all the people around us and they'll be perfect and we won't be intimidated or feel insecure because we'll be perfected too. But until then, church is about grace and forgiveness. So I want to say it again as clearly as I possibly can. Church is never about being perfect, looking perfect, speaking perfectly, or expecting perfection from others. If you've come in to church today and that presupposition has been smuggled in with you, I want to just rebuke it in the name of Jesus. Please don't put that on anybody else, especially your pastor. I'm not perfect. And those of you who know me, no, I am not perfect. You know, it's been a drought of amens, and then suddenly, yeah, that's good. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Feeling edified this morning. Thank you so much. <laughs> I wish I had planned that. That was great. But you know, nobody, be it casual attender, member, elder, or pastor, can ever live up to the expectation of perfection. We, we just can't do it. Nobody can do it. Yes, we grow in our understanding of the Word of God. Yes, we grow in our love for one another. And, and yes, we hope to attain and achieve excellence in the things that we do. I think that honors the Lord. We want the things that we do to be of good quality and worthwhile for others. But, and this is a big but, the church 
is foremost about growing in grace and forgiveness. We have to grow in grace and forgiveness. This is why we can all say with the disciples in this moment, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I've still got growth, to, to, still more growth to have in my life. See, if, if everyone is doing everything just right and carrying on perfectly, there will never be an opportunity for grace. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, we are still mired in sin and we wrestle daily with our flesh and we make a constant practice of extending grace and forgiveness lest we become hardened in our own hearts. And so when we start to withhold forgiveness and grace from others, that's when God steps in and he disciplines his children. And, and his, his, he even prunes sometimes hearts that are on their way to becoming hardened. And that's painful. But this reality I'm describing ought to be the theme of Christ's church in all places at all times until he comes. Grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness. It's not a show. It's about grace and forgiveness. It's not for anyone's entertainment. It's about the Lord Jesus. Everything we do at Emmaus Road is for the building up of the kingdom and for God's glory. Amen? All right, you, you guys had a long, bigger amen when you're making fun of me. Come on. Golly. Everything we do at Emmaus Road is for the building up of the kingdom and God's glory. Amen? Okay. All right. We can forgive because we are forgiven. Yeah, Jesus was disappointed by his guys. <coughs> They weren't able to do what needed to be done in that moment with that casting out of that demon. And, and he even says, Jesus even says, how long am I going to stay with you? How long must I put up with you? Jesus was frustrated in that moment. Well, can't you just hear the heart of Jesus laying it out for them? I mean, let's be honest. Jesus could do it faster, more effectively. But that wouldn't be modeling the reality of community and togetherness that he wants for his church. He wouldn't be setting the tone for, for coming together as the body of believers. And this is why uh, that phrase, I do believe, help my unbelief, is a prayer that we all need to be praying every day. Yes, Lord, I have faith, but I don't have the fullness of faith. I believe in you. I trust your word, but I struggle to believe you in my circumstance. Help my unbelief. That's how we need to pray. It's the prayer that helps us overcome unbelief belief. We're saying, what we're saying to God is, I don't have enough faith, enough strength or wisdom, enough expertise. Help me, Lord. Help me believe that you want me to live in, that you want to live in me today and work through me to impact the lives of others. I, ha I have a little faith, but Lord, help me have more faith. Help me believe more in you. And it's ironic, really, that the acknowledgement of our inadequacy is the very thing that opens up the doors of God's grace and his working in our lives. We just think, we just kind of get in this human interaction rut where it's like, well, I've got to do better and I've got to be smarter and I've got to figure it out. And it's like, no, when you relent and you just go to Jesus, he's like, you're a little toddler. Oh man, just, just, if you ever just, it's just so, even just now, like, in the, you guys were already singing, and I stepped out, and uh, the Reese kids, the, all the girls, came running down the hallway, and then the, the tiniest one, help me, ah, um, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, oh, and she just comes to me, and I'm just like, how, how can you possibly say no? My heart is just melted in a puddle. 
on the floor. Just, that's, that's what God sees with us. He sees his kids coming to him. And, we, you know, we look at ourselves and we go, I got it all figured out. <sighs> you know, I'm so smart, so holy. And what he sees is like, oh, come here, come here, come here. I love you anyway. You think you're so big, right? We need that. We need that. It's so ironic, you know, the acknowledgement of our inadequacy. Again, just the, that's the thing that opens the door to God's working in our lives. It's, it's like that with salvation. When everyone humbles themselves and they admit they're a sinner and can't do it, can't be good enough, Jesus steps in and he pours out his grace over them. And when we encounter situations and circumstances that overwhelm us, we are not, God's not calling us to muster up our best effort and our will and all of our strength. Instead, he wants us to humbly seek him and ask for his spirit to work in power in that situation on our behalf. So we got, we've got to deliberately develop a regular habit of asking God constantly for what we need in the moment, in the moment. You struggling with doubt today? Ask God for more faith. Maybe wavering in your resolve to follow through on something? Ask Jesus for more resolve to, to, to do it. Now, you, you wrestling, I'm, I just feel unwilling. I don't, I don't want to obey God in this thing. Stop and ask him for willingness and, and, and then act in faith and obey. It, it's, it's that simple. We can pray. We can pray. But you have to identify where your hangup is and then talk to the Father. And it's that simple. So we, we look at a text like this, look at a passage like this this morning, ask the question, well, why, the, why doesn't God heal all the time? Brings up this inevitable question, right? As to whether we should expect God to heal us every time we pray in every circumstance. And if you're at all like me, uh, you've asked the question, was that just for Jesus and the apostles? Was that for us today? James answers that question, and it is yes. James 5, 13 to 20. Listen to what James says. Half-brother of Jesus writes this epistle, this letter. As in verse 13, 5, 13, is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, sin in the body of Christ has an effect, not just the dis disfellowshipping and all the nitpicking and then all the, all the other things that happen. It can actually make us physically sick when we tolerate sin in our lives. And so I'm not saying that's all the time. But I'm saying here's, here's what James is saying. This is a reality in the kingdom. And so he says, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And then he gives us an example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah was a dude. He had skin and bones, flesh. He's just a guy. But what, 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 did, what did Elijah do? He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and, and, and the earth bore its fruit. He, so he says, listen, my brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let 
him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save both his will, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, James lays out like what we're supposed to do for one another, to care for each other, to go after each other when we go wayward, when we go off on our own, right? Bring them back, express love, challenge them, hold them accountable, right? These are the, these are the things. Listen, that's not the staff's job. We don't have staff. We, we, have, we have two, two staff. Would you say you're more of a staff, Kev? So we have a staff infection. There are two of us. We, okay. Yeah. Oh, man. Jesus says all things are possible for those who believe. Do you really believe that? What, is, what does Jesus mean? Does all mean all? Right? These are, the, these are the word games we play in our mind. But doesn't it just blow your mind? Now, now th- that doesn't mean that I can pray for a personal Learjet and it'll be in my front yard when I get home today. That's, that's, that's not it, right? <laughs> well, our prayers, the prayers that Jesus wants us to pray that he delights to answer are focused on the needs of his church and the needs of the lost around us and, and, and in making Jesus known in our context. He, he delights to answer those every time in his way. And in that context, all things are possible for those who believe. And still, some of you might be struggling a little bit this morning in your heart pleading, well, I believe, help my unbelief. And isn't that a paradoxical way to put it? I mean, when you think about it, uh, it's definitely thought-provoking. How can one say that he or she believes and at the same time ask for help in overcoming unbelief? I, I think the answer is really simple. And it, it's, it's because we're all in process. We're all in the process of becoming more like the Jesus that we love and worship. And some of us are early in that process, having just come to faith. Some of us are longer in the process, having walked with the Lord for years. We're all in process. And not one of us in this room has it all figured out, has all the right answers. But we will. We will when we stand with Him in glory, in the presence of our Lord and Savior. But until then, we pray. And we read God's Word, and we ask the Spirit to work in us that our love for others would grow. And, and spill out into their lives. And we wait upon the Lord together, and we affirm that His timing is perfect. And, and, and I watch the signs of the times, and I'm so excited for the return of Jesus. And it still might be a little while longer. And I'm like, ah. But, but His timing is perfect. Every single one of us, you need, you need to know, you're all going to get 100% healed. Not today. I don't think. I mean, unless he comes. We're all going to be healed 100%, fully. Jesus has personally guaranteed it, but it might be glory before we receive it in full. So whether here, there, or in the air, we can know that Jesus has purchased our complete healing for his beloved bride, the church. And then beyond that, I'll just give you a couple of handholds for this as we go out. Did you know that prayer necessitates courage? Prayer necessitates courage. I was thinking about this this week, back to my experience as a lifeguard in high school and college. And, and I would stand at the beach or I stand at the pool. And, and if somebody was struggling or somebody was drowning, which happened a few times, I, I, if, I was, if I was only thinking to myself and the potential danger that I was going into, I probably would not have rescued them. So we can't think like that. We've got to think like first responders. 
in our culture, right? We've got to be willing to go in and help, even if it means putting ourselves at risk, right? So, so now as a pastor, I'm just telling you, as a pastor, I still need courage. When someone in this church body is doing bad things or wrong things or hurting others, I have to confront them lovingly and tell them to stop. They could get mad at me and, and reject me and say mean things about me and, and leave the church. And in a previous church, I even had someone threaten to harm me physically for confronting them over a sin issue. There's risk involved. But I, if I'm thinking about myself, if we as the body of Christ think about ourselves first, then we won't be courageous to obey God. We've got to be courageous and obey the Lord. We can't shrink back in fear, right? So courage must overcome the fear in us. The life that we're called to demands that we make courageous decisions constantly, even when we're gripped with fear. And maybe you're here this morning and you, and you just you hear me say these words and in your heart, you just say, I just don't think I'm cut out for this. I want to I wanna just affirm you in that. You're not. You're not. None of us are. Nobody is. Courage is not an issue of birthright or, or, or an issue of mental acuity. Courage is an expression of the heart. And God has given us new hearts. He's given us a heart transplant. He's put courage in. You know what encourage the word? I just want to encourage you, church. Do you know what that word means? Literally, to get courage in you. I want to encourage you. We, want, we need to encourage one another. I'm more convinced that what our culture needs is to see people who are passionate, sold-out worshipers of Jesus, who are willing to follow him anywhere and lay down their lives, and in the process become more like him every day. If they could see that, it would make a difference. People like that make evangelism a lifestyle instead of an event, right? Instead of, hey, come to our thing, the, the cry of the heart will be, how, how can I enter into your life, neighbor? How can I come alongside you and help you and pray for you? See, obedience requires courage. Obeying God and doing what is right and what is good requires courage. And yeah, there's still fear. There's still some fear there. If you don't hear anything else I say today, please listen to this. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's not. It's not the absence of fear. It's the absence of focus on you. Courage is not thinking about you. It's about thinking about others. God's called us here now at this moment in time in this little town that's becoming uh, bigger than most of us would like for it to become rather quickly. But the, it feels like the whole world's coming to Stanwood and Camino Island. And, and there's a part of me selfishly that's like, I like our small town. I like our Norse village. I like, but all these people are coming. And we get to tell them about Jesus if we'll walk in obedience. Man, think about that. In all of God's vast omniscience and foreknowledge, when he thought of you, he chose you for right here at this moment in this place, 21st century in Stanwood, Washington, to impact the world and the nations. That's crazy to me. He didn't choose you for the dark ages in Europe or for the settling of the new world in the Americas. He's chosen us for right here, right now. So what does that look like for you today? What does that look like for you this week? How will you be on mission to the lost people around you who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus? I only ask the question because, well, that's why we're here. This week, there are going to be those around you who need prayer. Will you step in and pray with them?
This week, you're going to encounter some people who need more love than maybe you feel like you're ready to give. (laughs) Will you engage with them? This week, maybe you'll encounter a, a life or two that don't know the Lord Jesus, that are searching for something and they don't even know what it is. Are you going to be willing to say and tell them the truth about the gospel? Will you walk around with your eyes shut or your eyes open this week when you encounter the demonic strongholds that only come out by prayer? Will you double down on prayer or will you give up easily? I'm not just asking you. I'm asking me. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. Now, I'll just say this and we'll we'll, we'll go, go to prayer. If you're breathing air and your heart is still beating in your chest, and I assume that's everybody in the room, then it is only because Jesus has still chosen you to be here right now to bring others into the kingdom. The apostles have given us a clear example of what not to do in the passage we've just read today. And God has given us this and other accounts of their failures and missteps so that we don't have to make them over and over and over again ourselves. How will you take what you've heard from the Spirit in the Word today and apply it to your own life this week in relationship to the people that Jesus has put around you? What does that look like for you? I want you to just take that into, your, into this moment as we pray together and ask the Lord to show you what it is He has for you this week, to, to, to at least be open in your heart to, to say what you need to say or to do what you need to do when that moment comes into your life this week. Lord Jesus, we ask you for your grace to lead us and to equip us. The thing that I just said and prayed for, all of us agree in theory. We all tremble in fear because we've, we live in a culture that's cultivated in us the fear of man. And I pray, Lord, that our love for our neighbors, our love for the lost would be greater than our fear of man. And then when we have the opportunity to speak the words of life to others or to serve people or to just love them in some tangible way, Lord, that we would not hesitate to do so and that we would do it in your name. We believe you, Lord, your word, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to move us and to fill us as we walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'll leave you with a section of a poem by missionary C.T. Studd. Now, if you're going to be a missionary, that's the name to have. Okay. Studd was an English missionary who faithfully served his Savior in China, India, and Africa. His motto was this, If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Here is just a very short excerpt from his poem, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. Here's what he said, and we'll end with this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only when life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.